0: You are great uh, and greatly to be praised. We love you, and we need you more than we know. Um, Thank you for uh, being uh, faithful. Thank you for being trustworthy. Uh, You are greatly to be praised, not not just because of what you have done for us, but because of who you are. Uh, So we set our feet on you as the one uh, who alone is worthy of our worship, worthy of our trust the only trustworthy anchor and refuge in this world and, and in the world beyond. And we, uh, In Christ this morning, we have reason to be glad, even if circumstances and difficulty swirls around us, God, you've given us reason to sing and to be glad, and so we can say that our, our souls do sing uh, how great you are. Your greatness is unsearchable, and, and we'll spend the rest of our days and eternity pouring out our praise because you're that worthy Uh, would you open our eyes this morning to the things you want Um, um, responding out of obedience to your word that you would soften our hearts and move in such a way that we would come to a place of conviction and conform our lives to your word we love you we're grateful to have this time together in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Go ahead, and have a seat. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Hope you are doing well. It's a beautiful day, and glad you are here. You can grab your Bibles. Let's open to the Book of Acts. We'll be in uh, chapter eight, is where we'll be this morning. And one of the uh, one of the funnest experiences I think as a human being, you ready for this? Wait for it. Is blowing on one of those fuzzy dandelions. Anybody? Any amen's out there. from the points, you're really little like you just look for them you find them you pull them up and you blow on them and it's just it's a lot of fun right so this section that we're in in the book of Acts is a little bit like that picture if you can kind of lock that picture in your mind of blowing on a dandelion and this and the seeds kind of scattering this moment in the book of Acts is much like that except the wind isn't just like a soft breath from an individual it's actually persecution So, you can think of it as the wind of persecution is coming upon God's people, upon the church, and it's going to blow outward, beyond Jerusalem, the seed of the gospel, the people of God taking the gospel of God to the reaches beyond Jerusalem. And so, you can kind of, with that picture in mind, you can join me in Acts chapter 8. If you were with us last weekend for Easter Sunday, uh, we did something a little bit abnormal because we... We started at the very start of chapter 8, looking at Saul of Tarsus and his life kind of encapsulated in brief form in the first few verses, and then we jumped over Philip's evangelistic ministry to look at Saul's conversion in chapter 9. So today we're going to go back to chapter 8, and I want us to read verses 1 through 8 to begin with, and then we'll pause and and make some observations. But let's go uh, together together in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is God's word. in that city. We'll pause there for a little bit. So title of this message is Scattered to Samaria. So the people of God, the ministry at this point in the early church from chapter one up until now has been limited to Jerusalem. In this moment, the church is being pushed out by way of persecution to really fulfill the purposes of God. So following the, the stoning of the church's first martyr, Stephen, you have Saul. Last week you might remember the picture of Saul in this section that Saul was ravaging the church. He was intent on the church's destruction. And you can picture him quite literally dragging men and women out of their homes to imprison them or otherwise uh, brutalize them, uh, even have them killed. And as a result, Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's in verse two. But the apostles stayed behind in Jerusalem, which is notable for a couple of different reasons. One is it shows us that Philip... The Philip that we're gonna look at today is Philip the, the deacon or the key servant from chapter six and not Philip the apostle. There's two Philips. The apostles stay behind and Philip, this kind of unprofessional and non-apostle is the one who comes into full view in this section in chapter eight. So there's a really encouraging part about that. And it's it is essentially this, that the gospel was spread in this moment, not by professionals, but by regular people. That's good news and it's challenging news, right? Because that's us unless you consider yourself a professional Christian, I'm guessing you probably don't. Like we're among the the non-professionals. We're the regular people and God has given us the charge to spread the gospel. Just like in this moment, the people who were pushed out of the boundaries of Jerusalem were the rest of the church, not the apostles. They stayed behind to the extent they might be called the professionals. Everybody else is pushed outward by way of the persecution that comes upon the church. The gospel is spread through regular people, not professionals. So, the persecution which scattered the church served to fulfill Jesus' promise and commission in Acts 1-8. This is something we'll continue to kinda go back to because we'll see it when when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in just a couple of chapters. Because chapter one, verse eight, is kinda like the table of contents for the book of Acts. Because Jesus says, hey, you're gonna receive power, my people, you're gonna receive power through his spirit, and it's gonna allow you to do one specific thing, to be my witnesses. You're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, into the remotest part of the earth. And that's really how the book is structured. And so now we're kind of pushing outward to that second circle, kind of the Judea and Samaria part of God's witnessing work outside of Jerusalem. And up until this point, the church was limited to Jerusalem, no witnesses in Judea, no, no witnesses in Samaria, no witnesses to the remotest part of the earth, but that's going to change right now because persecution is coming upon the church. And what's really interesting, helpful, notable about this as well is that what Saul and the opponents of the church meant for evil to destroy the church was actually the mechanism that God used to help the church fulfill its purpose. And that has been the case throughout the ages. The blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. You may have heard that statement. Where the church is persecuted, so often it becomes most fruitful. And it harkens back a little bit. Most of you probably heard the story of Joseph, if you haven't. and Back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, Joseph is a man who was betrayed by his brothers. They hated him because he's the favorite son. They sold him into slavery. And in God's kindness and providence, he... He raises up Joseph into a position of prominence in Egypt to rescue his whole family and ultimately to save the whole nation of Israel and ultimately to preserve the Messiah who comes from Israel. And at the end of the book of Genesis, one of the most famous statements in the whole book, Joseph says this, looking at his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, he says, what you meant for evil, God intended for or meant for good so it would result in salvation, so that people wouldn't starve to death, they'd be saved by way of my being in this particular place, and that's very much what we see here. This deep theological term of providence is, in brief, you could summarize like this. God's providence is his governing and sustaining hand over everything, every inch of creation, every moment of time. God's governing and sustaining hand over everything. And in this moment, his providence is allowing the church to fulfill his purposes through the vehicle of persecution. And it might be that for some of you in this room, you need to just be reminded of, be comforted in maybe some peculiar way by the fact that God doesn't waste difficulty. In so many ways, if you live life long enough, you know that our most difficult moments can often be the greatest platform for usability for christ in our lives some of the darkest moments of sadness can release us in christ to the m- moments of greatest joy and fulfillment that's because of god's good gracious providence his governing and sustaining hand over all things and namely our own lives so luke zooms in on philip's evangelistic efforts now as we kind of journey for- forward uh, Philip, who's one of the deacons from chapter 6, he goes down to Samaria to proclaim Christ to them. You see in verse 5, you can look there with me. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Because we're reading this in narrative form, we may not feel the, the weight of what is going on right here. So I want to I develop this a little bit so we feel the magnitude of this moment because it is really, 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 really significant. So, the Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. They, they had a, a beef that went back a thousand years. They did not care for one another. There was a, a broad tension and dissension between the two cultures. And so Jews actually thought of Samaritans a little bit like half-breeds, kind of partially Jewish, partially Gentile. And as a result, neither Jew nor Gentile liked Samaritans. And if you were a Jew, what you saw the Samaritans have is they rejected all the Old Testament except the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They built their own temple to worship him. and they had their own kind of version, although similar in some ways of the coming Messiah. And so John in his gospel in chapter four, in the midst of Jesus notably bringing good news to a Samaritan woman at a well, John comments, the uniqueness of this moment, saying that Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. That was the way they operated. They didn't like each other. And why is this important? Because what we're about to see is the work of God through the preaching of the gospel to what the Jews would consider very unlikely converts, very unlikely people to not only be given but to receive the word of God from none other than a, a Jew himself, Philip. Speaking of another Jewish man, namely Jesus. John Stott stated stated that Samaritans were despised as hybrids in both race and religion. So John, who I mentioned, summed up the relationship as Jews having no dealings with Samaritans. John wasn't just commenting on that brokenness of relationship between Jews and Samaritans. He was actually an illustration of it. So let me tell you what I mean. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, here's the setting. Jesus is actually around and in Samaria. And there's Samaritans who don't receive the the good news that Jesus is giving away. So they don't receive Jesus. And James and John see this take place, and this is John's response. Given the fact he doesn't like Samaritans, they just saw the Samaritans reject Jesus. He says, when Jesus' disciples, James and John, saw that some Samaritans did not receive Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's a pretty gracious response, right? Maybe we should just incinerate them. Like, just take, just wipe them out. Maybe that would be better than to see them disrespect you. But that's really how Jews felt about Samaritans. They really had no, no love for them at all. There was a deep hostility and divide between Jews and Samaritans. So this is a monumental moment, much like we'll see in chapter 10, when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. This is a culture-breaking sort of moment God is at work his word is being preached and the people in Samaria are believing and they're getting baptized and there's miracles and signs accompanying the preaching of God's word through Jesus everyone and everywhere has been given a way to become a part of God's family unlikely places and unlikely people all through the power of God and through the work of Christ What we see is that the people paid attention in verse 6. The crowds with one accord, if you can imagine the masses kind of gathering around Philip, he's preaching Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is the Messiah. The crowds are gathering around, and they're paying close attention. Just remember that term, because it comes up a couple more times in just a moment. They paid attention to Philip, and ultimately we see them respond. And before Philip knew it, there was a revival Taking place right in front of him. And what a scene it must have been, right? You think of, I don't know what the, what the most spiritual moment you've ever had, like where you felt the presence, saw the presence, experienced the presence of God. But if you can imagine Philip, he's preaching Christ. The lame people are being healed. Paralyzed people are able to walk again. Evil spirits come shrieking out of people at the presence of, and the speaking of Jesus' name. They come yelling out this is intense. This is pandemonium, like spiritual pandemonium and the best variety. But God is at work. But it shouldn't surprise us when, when Jesus comes into town, when he walks into the room, even if it's on the lips of a simple man, it changes everything. It can change everyone. When we talk about the 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 kingdom being preached, the fact that Jesus is king, it should be no surprise that when the king walks into the room, that every so-called lowercase king runs and hides, that's what the spirits were doing in the presence of the king. So you had evil spirits shrieking out of fear at the presence of Jesus, and then you had the alternative, those who have surrendered to Jesus, they're crying out for joy. And one of the most subtle but wonderful statements in the whole section in verse 8 says, so there was much joy in that city. Arguably just an incredible understatement, but wonderful summary of God was at work and there was great joy. I couldn't but think this week just reading this text that this is the way it should be, right? Every time we see any shade of the work of God in our own lives or otherwise, there should be great joy among us because we see God working, we see his presence felt, we hear his word preached and to us it's like an oasis in a desert land and where God is at work through the preaching of his word and the healing power of his hand, it should be accompanied by great joy. But God's word also brings about great change. And so let's go to verse nine. This is a different section now. We're gonna kinda, there's a few layers to this story and the next one is a particular individual that was present, namely Simon the Magician. In verse nine, it says this. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So pause there for a second. So for a long time, we don't really know how long, just maybe say it was years, Simon the Magician, this man involved in the occult and magic, had wowed the people. He thought he was great, they thought he was great, he was doing seemingly great things, and they paid really close attention to him. They were amazed at his work until Jesus came into town, until they heard about Jesus and then everything Change, but they were amazed by his power. They paid close attention to him. The picture is that every last person paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest. But in verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. I was thinking about it this way you know, when God opens our ears to understand and to hear, the good news of the gospel for the first time. When when he opens our eyes, to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, when that happens, it redefines what's amazing. Like even the most amazing thing or person in this world pales in comparison to the God of the universe becoming flesh, taking on our debt, rising from the grave and purchasing for himself a people of his own possession. It redefines amazing. It captures the imagination even. And all of God's people seemingly at Samaria at this moment, from the least to the greatest, they move from paying attention to Simon being captivated by this guy and his magic, and all at once through the preaching of the gospel, they now pay attention to whom? To Jesus, to the words of God, to the word of faith given through the gospel message. And they say, as it were, you could think of them saying, almost transferring the same words they used to give to Simon, that this man, namely Jesus himself, is the power of God that is called great. And God's word captures our attention. When you think of your own life, that Jesus and his kingdom like his being king, us being his subjects, part of his family, that that becomes to us like the matter of first importance, the thing that matters the most. You see in verse 11, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. The Samaritans, the picture is this, the idea of paying attention isn't just merely to kind of sit up and be alert and listen. It's that plus, just holding something close, keeping it near to you. As if to say the the Samaritans held every... They hung on every word that was spoken about Jesus. They paid close attention to the things that were said about him and about his kingdom and about the good news of being considered his child. And so maybe just for a moment, I could ask us some questions. Like, how about us? Like, could the same be said of us? If you're a Christian in this room, do you pay close attention? Do you keep near to you the words and the promises of God As it were, we hang on every single word that God says. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says it this way. He says, my soul is crushed with longing after your word at all times. And I pray it be more so of us that we be ones who wanna keep God's word near to us, that we pay close attention to every single twist and turn of his promises. But what captivates you? Are there personalities? earthly forms of greatness that garner our attention and affection more than God? What are we giving our attention to? When we hear God's word, do we immediately respond in faith and obedience or do we delay, looking for some better alternative? One thing we can learn from the Samaritans in this story is their immediate, joyful response to the word of God. They paid attention to it and they responded. And one of the layers of that response was being baptized. We're gonna have baptism probably over the next month and there may be some of you in this room that you've trusted in Christ, you've responded to his word and God is commending you to get baptized, to be a part of that joyful response and proclaiming outwardly that you wanna follow, you are following Christ as your king because he's strolled into town as it were and everything has changed about you just like it did in Samaria that day. Now, verse 13 is kind of an interesting note, and we'll kind of go back to Simon in just a second, but read verse 13. So, there's some wonderful things happening. People responding by faith are getting baptized. It says, verse 13, even Simon the magician himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So, Philip's preaching even seems to have transformed Simon the magician, at least initially just like it had the crowds we hear that Simon heard the preaching he believed and was baptized and we're going to come back to that in just a moment because it doesn't quite materialize the way it looks at this moment in Simon's life but read verse 14 there's a couple things that are worth explanation here verse 14 says now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God so somehow the apostles back in Jerusalem had heard the word that people were believing and here's what happens they sent to them Peter and John. So Peter and John leave Jerusalem they come to Samaria and they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles Peter and John come to Samaria so the Samaritans can receive the Holy Spirit. So Luke highlights this I would submit because it is abnormal. This is a unique moment that takes a little bit of explanation because this isn't the pattern and the, the, the flow of even the salvation moment for the believer. Isn't that somehow there's a subsequent moment where the Spirit of God comes through the laying on of hands or some other experience. So I wanna pause here just for a second to explain that. So if you go back to earlier in the book, Acts chapter two, you might remember Peter's first sermon, a really long, beautiful exposition of Jesus from the Old Testament. At the end of his sermon, you might remember the people heard it and they were like, what should, their hearts were cut to the, the quick and they're like, what should we do? How should we respond to what you have just shared with us? And this is what Peter said in response. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in that moment, the Spirit of God comes as a part of the conversion of these people not as a subsequent act or moment. In this new messianic family, as men and women and children believed in the Lord, they immediately received the Holy Spirit who took up residence within them. One other example is in Ephesians chapter one, where it talks about just the beauty of our salvation in chapter one. It goes on to say this in verse 13 and 14. It says, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so you heard about the gospel and believed in him, you were you believed in it, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So why am I taking time to explain this? Because there's a whole lot of confusion as you journey through Acts and there's a whole schools of theology based on the idea that there's some sort of second experience, second filling of the Holy Spirit that's subsequent to the conversion moment and it leads to all sorts of confusion scripturally. So I'm holding this up to you as as a break from what's normal in scripture, and I'll tell you why I think that it happened this way. So what is the reason that God may have done it this way? A couple of things I would say. Is that because of the uniqueness of this moment in the church in church's history, the work of Pentecost, the Spirit's work up to this point, was contained within the walls of Jerusalem, right? You remember that? Persecution is now pushing it out, and this is a substantial change. So the work of God's Spirit is now moving outside of Jerusalem to non-Jews for the very first time. And so it seems that what God is doing, he's confirming his work, the legitimacy of the gospel work, both to his apostles, Peter and John, and through his apostles. So let me tell you what I mean. So how many of you have had a Brits donut before? Come on, raise your hands high. If you haven't had one, you should ask your friend, and they'll tell you why you should have one. So before you had a Brits donut, which is awesome, you should get it, um, you probably heard about a Brits donut from someone who was like a Brits salesman of sorts, telling you how wonderful it is. My wife describes it as a cross between a donut and a funnel cake. You was just selling you on it, like the white bag with all the grease on it. like you just. But you don't know until you know. Like You don't know how good it is until you eat one. So you gotta experience it. Like you just don't know until you know. And I would submit that this is part of what happens for Peter and John. Acts 1.8, you're gonna be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. The notion that God would include in his family non-Jews is still so counter to the history of the Jewish people. But now the Spirit of God is pushing out of Jerusalem. So it makes sense that God would bring Peter and John out of Jerusalem to be a part of confirming visibly to them that his spirit actually is doing what Jesus said it was gonna do. Samaritans are being saved. Non-Jewish people are coming to faith. And you think about John, like he's the one back in Luke 9, I'd read earlier, he's the one who wanted to call down fire from heaven to burn up the Samaritans. So now he's, he's walking with Peter to Samaria and his hands will pray for the Samaritans to come to faith and receive the Spirit of God. This is profound. So God is confirming his work, his gospel work, to these men, these unique figures in the early church, to the apostles, and then also through them, to confirm their unique place, their apostolic role in the early church, unique to those 12 men. He's confirming his work through them as well. But then this section ends with a, what I would call a really unfortunate note for Simon the magician because what started out looking really good doesn't end up all that well. So let's go to verse 18. So Simon at this point is seen the spirit come through Peter and John's laying on of hands and this is what we see, what we see him do next. <clears throat> verse 18, excuse me. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall or the, the bile of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So Simon sees the Spirit of God given to the Samaritans through the hands of Peter and John. And what does he say? I'd like to be able to do that too. That's some, that's some neat power and I'd like to have that power too. Here's some money. I'd like to buy the ability to do what I just saw you do. And it's no wonder, right? You think of just the pattern of like sin and our lost condition. Simon was used to, to doing what? Amazing people for years, long time. He had captivated people's attention. He amazed the Samaritans. He, he possessed power. He thought he was great. People thought he was great so no wonder if his heart hasn't changed, he's just gonna wanna remain great, just in a different way. He's like, "Hey, I'd like to have that power, and so he brings out some silver. And Peter does not mince words here, and the English doesn't do it justice in the ESV or probably any translation you're reading. I don't mean to offend anybody here, but I think you'll get the gravity of it. That what Peter says is to hell with you and your money. Looks him in the eyes, Like, how dare you think you can buy the gift of God? And if you do, you need to understand that your your trail is gonna end up in full-on judgment from God. So he doesn't mince words, a really harsh rebuke. So neither Simon's means nor his motives were right in this moment. He wanted to buy the gift of God. It seems like he wanted it for power. I wanna have the power that you just displayed. Everyone I put my hands on, I want them to receive the Spirit, and Peter's like, no, you don't have any part in this because your heart's not right with God. And he somehow discerns that like Simon's heart is caught up. It's captured with sin. If you believe somehow you can buy the gift of God, the only thing you'll find yourself worthy of is hell. You can't purchase what the, the grace of God alone can provide. You can't afford what Christ alone has paid for. And throughout church history, the idea of buying spiritual power, this is really interesting, I didn't know that until this week, the idea of buying spiritual power has been called simony. The word, the name Simon with an I. It's like doing Simon. like You're just doing your life like Simon, simony. So before we absolve ourselves of any responsibility, because it's likely none of you have ever tried to give money for spiritual power. I'm just going to assume that for the moment. If you have, come talk to me later. You can share the story with me. I'm sure it didn't go very well. But if we haven't done that, I think there could be a temptation to be like, well, that's not really a struggle. I don't struggle trying to buy spiritual power. But it may be closer than what we think. Let me give you a few reasons why I think that. Maybe personally for me, have I ever felt the pull of preaching for recognition or status? Answer, yes, often. Maybe for you, for all of us. Have we ever served, sought to serve for the same, for recognition, or for status, or even to pursue some position visibly before other people? Possibly. Has our pursuit of spiritual maturity become some way to prop ourselves up over and against other people? I guess as we struggle with that. So it might, might be that this struggle, this simony, is, is a little bit closer than. We might think at first glance, and God wants us to be reminded just in this rebuke here that you can't purchase what grace alone can provide. It's not the power that matters as much as the pursuit of God in the midst of our lives. So Peter moves from a blasting rebuke to a personal plea for Simon's heart. So a heart that Peter discerned was not right with God, captive to sin, was in bondage and bitterness. And this is an earnest, like really clear plea to Simon the magician. And what's sad about it was Simon's response. Because you might anticipate there'd be this broken, like I'll do whatever you want, like and praise to God because that's what Peter said. Because Peter says, hey, just pray that by some chance you might be forgiven for the intent of your heart. And Simon, in a, in a lackluster, lazy, lame response, essentially says, "Can you pray for me?" He doesn't. He doesn't take the ownership of his own sin. He doesn't absorb the responsibility for his wrong motives and wrong means. He doesn't turn in repentance away from those things and to God. He's just like, "Hey, why don't you? Why don't you just pray for me instead?" But that's not what Peter asked him to do. He's like, "You pray." Seek forgiveness, repent, turn, that God may grant you forgiveness for the, the sin in your heart, but he just apathetically doesn't. One of the things I would say here, um, church family, is we think about like what repentance lo- looks like. If, you don't, if, if you're if you not familiar with that word, the easiest way to understand repentance is, a, is doing a turn, a turn away from sin, a turn to God, but it's one that's really urgent. It's not just a casual like, "Hey, I'll go this way instead." It's like get me away from that and get me toward God. It's an earnest turn toward the things of God. And there's a picture given in Second Corinthians chapter seven about these two things. There's there's a type of worldly sorrow that we can get when we're confronted with our sin. We talk to our kids about this when they're little. It's like sometimes when we're young and when we're old, we can be grieved over our sin but we're more just sorry that we're feeling its consequences. Or we're sorry that we got caught. More than we're sorry because we grieve the heart of God we want to please him. Those are two very different things. And Second Corinthians 7 kind of bears those out because Paul has written a letter to this church rebuking them openly for their sin. And he's talking now about the grief that he heard that they had as a result of his letter. He says in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And he goes on to describe, here's what godly sorrow, repentance, is accompanied by. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation over the sin, what fear of God, what longing, what zeal, At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. Repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God is an intensely personal action. It takes personal ownership over the wrongdoing. When you're confronted with sin, no one can respond for you. When God draws my attention to my own failure in sin, I must be the one to step forward and take responsibility and turn away from it. Confess it, which means to agree with God that it's wrong. And turn away from it to turn to the things of God. And God uses these moments of confrontation to lead us to the up, down a path of life. You've heard me talk about this before. Is that when we're exposed in Christ, it's it's the path of healing simultaneously. But in this moment, you have this city that's just. Ravaged in the best possible way by the power of God. There's much joy in the city. And Simon the magician for us is a little bit of a mystery. Like we don't know ultimately, he's kind of placed in this nether world of we don't know quite where he ended up. And my encouragement to you this morning is is maybe if there's a degree of not dealing with sin in your own life, is don't go another day without turning away from it and turning to Christ. Throw yourself upon Jesus today. Repent, turn away from sin, per, turn to him. I shared this at the end of the service, last service, but I want to share it kind of to close off the message this morning. As you think about Samaria, you know, that subtle but beautiful statement, there was much joy in that city. It really is kind of a, a microcosm. It's a small picture of what the kingdom of God does. Does it to some degrees on earth, but ultimately there will be a, a place where the kingdom of God is complete and full and final. And so those people in Samaria, for you and I, when we see the work of God and we rejoice because we get to be a part of it, when we see God's work in us, we see the evidence of his grace and there's great joy in seeing God's work. There's a way in which the kingdom of God, where God is king, is seen in those moments. The joy of his people surrendered to him, turning to him, even despite our brokenness and sin along the way, that there's there's much joy now in the presence of God's people in this little city on a hill, our local church even, our lives as believers. But there's gonna come a day and we're gonna sing a song in just a little bit that we've sung before. We will feast in the house of Zion, which is kind of this forward-looking picture. If you've never understood what, what that song is about, it's really looking forward to this future city, that there's gonna be a future city And the idea of there being much joy in that city, whatever joy is experienced here is gonna be fulfilled ultimately there. It's all found in Christ. If you've never surrendered to Christ, if you've never bent your knee to him, make today the day. And if you are his, then let's just rejoice in being his, amen? And then we'll get to take communion together here in just a moment. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Let's take a second to pray and ask the Lord to kind of do business in our hearts as we close off our time in the word. God, we know uh, very well our own failure and frailty and I thank you today that we are not accepted uh, because of any good deed that we have done um, or any amount of time that has been good enough for long enough, but we are accepted, we're loved because because of the work of Christ and and so we boast in him alone uh, this morning. I pray that there'd be, there be much joy in our lives as, as your people. Having been those who have received grace and mercy from you, God, I pray that we'd be filled with great joy and gladness. And I pray as well that we would be in, encouraged and incited by the example of Philip, a normal guy uh, who is used by a supernatural God to preach uh, the good news of Christ and to see many, many people come saving faith. God, we want to see more people come to know you. That's the whole reason we exist, is to proclaim your fame in our city, uh, in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our lives, our workplaces, in our relationships. And so help us to be serious about that responsibility. Help us to be joyful uh, as we embrace it, as we take up the mantle of gospel work in our city and in our lives. Uh, We love you. And Thank you for who you are, for what you have done. Thank you for the example of Philip and pray that we'd emulate his example as your people. In Jesus' name.